Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Manda Scott. Manda is a veterinarian, an author, a shamanic teacher, and a climate crisis activist. This week, we are incredibly privileged to have Dr. Joe Lang join us. Joe has been presenting at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference for several years, and his presentations for me are always the standouts of the conference. So I'm just delighted that he has agreed to join us for this podcast. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Lang, he received his PhD from the University of Chicago, where he was a student of Israel Gold Diamond. He is the co-founder of Headsprout. At Headsprout, Joe and his colleagues designed, tested, and implemented highly successful early reading and reading comprehension programs. These programs are based on behavioral analytic instructional technology and they have helped millions of children learn to read. They also produced a comprehensive interactive science curriculum for grades three through eight. He is currently a partner in an interactive technologies company that provides educational software based on the principles of generative instruction. Dr. Lang has published more than 30 articles describing documenting, and analyzing instructional programs. And he's given more than 50 invited presentations of his work in this area, both in the US and abroad. He has four patents that reflect his work related to educational applications of behavioral analysis. He has held a number of positions in schools, universities, and other public institutions related to instructional design, educational technology, large-scale performance improvement, and clinical behavioral analysis. He is a fellow of the Association for Behavioral Analysis International, and his far-reaching work applying behavioral analysis in education and other areas has brought positive visibility to the discipline of behavioral analysis as a whole. So, given this introduction, you may be wondering what in the world is the connection to horses and climate change? All I can say is you'll have to listen to the podcast to find out. I've had the privilege, as I've said, to get to know Joe through the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. That's a conference that is organized each year by Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz and Mary Hunter. And it's done in association with the University of North Texas and Jesus's graduate students. At this year's conference, Joe gave two talks that were just absolutely mind-spinning. The first talk was on degrees of freedom, which I always find fascinating and very relevant to the training that I teach. He followed that talk up with an expansion of the concept that was profoundly disturbing, horrifying, and hopeful. All of those things at once. He basically explained how someone becomes a terrorist. 
So you may still be wondering, what is the connection to climate change? And if you were at the conference, you may be wondering how you missed Joe's second talk. Well, you didn't. He gave this presentation on Monday during the day of private talks that we have after the conference. This is a day for the presenters to discuss the various presentations that we've had over the last two days and for Jesus's graduate students to present on their research projects. What I've learned is if you want to expand a field, you don't do it from within. You do it by bringing in ideas from the outside. That's why I find conferences like this so valuable. It gives me a chance to look at areas that I might not encounter on my own. I want to expand our thinking around climate change and how we can work with one another to come up with solutions. And that's why I want to share Joe's talk on degrees of freedom. As you listen to this conversation, you may start out thinking, this is fascinating, but I really don't get the connection to climate change. All I can say is be patient. Joe will get us there and it will be well worth the journey. I'm editing this at a time when everything is being shut down because of the coronavirus. We are living the experience of having our degrees of freedom reduced. Let's hope by summer this crisis will have passed and we'll be returning to a more stable normal. But let's also hope we learn from this experience because it is just a preview of what may happen as the effects of climate change become even more pronounced. The concepts Joe is going to be sharing with us become all the more relevant given what we are currently living through. So sit back and enjoy. It's going to be a fascinating ride. The starting point for the conversation were the two presentations that you gave at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. I have always been fascinated by this concept of degrees of freedom. I think it's a very powerful uh, way of, of considering behavior and choices and why we, why things emerge the way that they do. And when you've talked about degrees of freedom, I always think of Andre Agassi. Are you, have you ever read his autobiography? It's, no. I, don't know, I don't know why I read it, because I don't I don't, I don't. I'm not a tennis player. I know he played tennis. That's all. Right, right. Well, that's about all I knew either. Um, and I, I think it was probably an audio tape. No, I think I actually read. It doesn't matter um, whether I listened to it or I read it. But for some bizarre reason, I read it because I don't watch tennis um, either. But you know, he's a Wimbledon champion, right. and he and he hated tennis because when he was a child, his father forced him to play tennis. And his father was determined that he was going to be a champion tennis player. So he built this device in his backyard that would lob tennis balls at his son. So after school, he had to go home and hit like four or 500 tennis balls every afternoon. So while his friends were off playing video games and uh, playing softball and other sports or just hanging around, Agassi was in the backyard hitting tennis balls. 
And he, when he grew up, all he knew was tennis. He had zero degrees of freedom. He became a Wimbledon champion and he hated, hated tennis. And I thought, what a perfect example of what you are describing when you go through the degrees of freedom. Right. So could you, because I've heard the lecture, but Manda hasn't, and the people listening have not, could you tell us briefly what it is that we're talking about? Sure. So the degrees of freedom comes from uh, the, the, the typical statistical use of the term. Uh, it's a little oversimplification, but it's basically the number of alternatives minus one describes the degrees of freedom one has. So yes. if one has two alternatives, then n2 minus one would be one degree of freedom. If one has three alternatives, it would be two degrees of freedom, four, three degrees of freedom, and so forth. So the usage here is in terms of alternative contingencies that are available to the organism. And we use the word organism because it applies to humans and it applies to all the animal kingdom. Who knows, it might apply to plants. We haven't looked at that, but uh, it's, it's possible. But the, uh, um, uh, what we're saying is that if we, we look at it in terms of particularly my area of interest, which is uh, behavioral or operant psychology, uh, we tend to think of it in terms of a three-term contingency. And when we do that, um, we find out there's some very interesting things when we consider degrees of freedom. So, for example, we have an occasion for behavior uh, in the animal training world. They use the word cue often, <laughs> right? Right, right. And, the, uh, and then we have the behavior itself. And then we have a consequence for that behavior. And the consequence can be a variety of types of events, uh, both uh, you know, good and bad from the point of view of the organism, but it's a consequence. Now, when we talk about that in terms of a contingency, what we're really saying is the consequence can only occur if both the occasion and behavior occur together. So even though, you know, I hear all the time, get the behavior going and then put a cue on it. Well, that cue is still, the animal's still looking at you. <laughs> they're they're right. you know, you're just transferring the control of one set of cues to another. It's not that they're absent to begin with. You're just not specifying it uh, as precisely uh, to begin with, right? So the, uh, 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 whether that's good or bad, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a topic for another discussion. But, uh, but in essence, you have an occasion of behavior and a consequence such that the consequence will only occur if both the occasion and behavior occurs. You can have the occasion without the behavior, you'll have no consequence. You have the behavior without the occasion, you'll have no consequence. And you can have the occasion and behavior together and no consequence which is, gives us our schedules of reinforcement. But if the consequence is going to occur, you have to have both the occasion and behavior. Well, what this does then is it sets up relations whereby we can begin to analyze the alternatives into which people can enter. And one of the examples, of course, uh, I used, I believe, in the talk was that of, uh, in a general sense, there is a mine presence, I have mining skills, and I'm paid for my work. In other words, um, there has to be a mine and they have, I have to have the skills for me to observe the payment occurring. The payment occurring will not occur if there's just a mine present. 
the payment will not occur if there's if I have the skills, but there's no mine. <laughs> uh, so in essence, there has to be the mine and the skills for the payment. Now, if payment is something that my life depends on, my family's well-being, and there are no other alternatives, I have zero degrees of freedom. I have to work in the mines. That's it. Now, if I have a mill present, and I have milling skills, whatever milling skills might be, I have no idea. I don't think I've ever looked inside a mill. But the, uh, um, uh, and I'm paid for them. Well, now I, and I'm paid roughly the same. Now I have one degree of freedom. I can go to the mill for a job, and I can go to the mine, or I can go to the mine for a job. Now, again, if now there are fields available and I can work in the fields, have those skills, and they'll pay me, I have two degrees of freedom. So within that class of labor, I have uh, two degrees of freedom and can go back and forth. And, if, and what happens then is that consequences, other than just getting paid, enter into my decision. It's how far do I have to travel to work? What's the health situation like at work? Do I have to breathe in the coal dust or the get blown up in a mill explosion or uh, get run over by a tractor? You know, I can start beginning factoring these things in. Whereas if I have zero degrees of freedom or, or even fewer, I mean, in terms of if I have, you know, if I don't have many degrees of freedom down to zero, um, these things can't come into play to influence my behavior. So this is what we talk about when we talk about genuine choice. That is the critical consequence, getting paid, and that is defined technically as the, given a set of consequences that occur, the ones that govern the behavior are the critical consequences. If I am looking at breathing in coal dust or getting paid, and I work in there even though I have to breathe the coal dust, uh, then getting paid is the critical consequence, not the outcome of the coal dust, right? Right. So, but it doesn't mean that the coal dust wouldn't have an effect if the if the critical consequences were shared by other alternatives. So this is in essence what we do when we begin looking at degrees of freedom and degrees of coercion. And what does that mean? It means that I can begin to control or eliminate. Uh, any of the elements then of the contingency, the occasion, the behavior, the consequence. So in the case of slavery and indentured servitude and so forth, uh, you have the opportunity to work, you have the skills to work, I just don't pay you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and there are other reasons why you're working for me having to do with what would happen to you if you didn't work, right? Uh, and so that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a serious degree of coercion. But let's say now I've, the laws have passed, civil wars have been fought, and so forth. And I can now modify that a little bit. And simply, there's a variety of jobs open. I'll just pay uh, people of color for one type of job and not pay them for another. All right? Okay. So All right. I can, I, it doesn't have to be slavery and so on. It can be just, I'll, I just, as a group, we can decide not to pay. Or what we can do is say, no, that's illegal. That's to, they'll have, you cannot do that. And so what I can do is, well, I can, if you have the skills and there's the opportunity there, you can get paid for it. But all I have to do is remove the opportunities. 
So we have what's called equal opportunity employment, and we have laws passed, right? So we see that up after the Civil War emerged and so on, the way we controlled, we as a society, um, controlled uh, access was through opportunity. Then there was civil rights movement and opportunities were then availed. Well, if you have to pay and you have to provide the opportunity, what's left for controlling who gets what in what in society? And that's by the means. So we don't educate as well, right? We don't train and so on. So we can restrict the alternatives by targeting any element of the contingency, the occasion, the behavior, or the consequence. This is why when someone says, well, there's equal opportunity for everyone, so it's fair and, and, and equal. everybody's got an equal shot. The answer is only if they have equal means and yeah. there's equal pay, right? So, the, uh, so this analysis allows us to get into the fine grain understanding of what it actually means to be an, uh, uh, an equal society uh, and provide not only the opportunities, but the means and then the uh, consequences for everyone so a genuine choice uh, will occur. In the laboratory, pigeons, uh, when given a choice, prefer conditions of multiple degrees of freedom over those that do not have it. In other words, they can, even though their rate of food they get is identical. Joe, can you tell us how you test that? Um, well, this was done in a series of experiments. I, I don't recall the exact procedures, but I can get you the reference, so and you can stick it up on the any link here if you want to. Um, whereby they show, and uh, I think it was Charles Catania did the work, where animals have a, 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 I think it's in a concurrent chain procedure, whereby you can peck one and you go off one track, or you can peck and get a choice. And But the rate of food that you get for either choice ultimately is the same. And the animals will choose to be in the freedom situation rather than in the um, restricted choice. However, if giving up choice results in a better payoff, they'll abandon the choice. So again, the critical consequences are important, right? People will give up choice for security, for better payoffs and so on. At least pigeons will. And we all know that pigeons are just little people with feathers. But I read something yesterday, in fact, uh, someone had done some work and I will need to track down the primary source where rats, when offered a choice of gaining the reward, the contingency that they wanted, they didn't do it. If in doing so, it would harm another rat. Nonsense. Really? Okay, I need to look that up. Then. Here's the problem. It's how you arrange the conditions. You can get the rats to do anything you want. Uh, the, okay. uh, uh, if there's an old experiment from 1966, I can send you the experiment. The article I actually have it by Davison Wheeler, and here they took rats in, a, in an operant uh, chamber, and I may have some of the little details wrong, but I have the article, so you can you can go back and correct it. But the uh, they they what they did is they put rats in a chamber, and one each of them had their lever to press for food. Now the rats, who uh, would uh, uh, on basically ratio schedules. Both of them on, where they have a, a the, in other words, their food is dependent upon the amount of lever pressing they do, right? They press, each press, 
They don't wander. They don't do anything. They just stay there and press the lever. Now, an, you can put one rat on an interval or a, uh, what's called a differential reinforcement low rate schedule. Here is a timer times down. A press during the timer time down resets the timer. So the rat has to stay away from the lever for a particular amount of time and then press. The other rat uh, is on a ratio schedule that we have. Now this rat with time on its hands will wander over and help the other one press. Huh. And then go over and, and, and this. Now, if you put them both on an interval where the other one can wander over, now when they wander over, they fight. Oh, because of press. Well, that makes sense. But in the back of the cage, they'll get together and groom and be nice to each other. But if they get near their levers, uh -uh, fight. Yeah, but that makes sense. Right. You change the schedule and all yeah. of a sudden they're friends. So okay. in essence, before you go off to the races saying that there's anything intrinsic into the animals, you know, that they'll do this or that, you have to look at the schedule, right? Okay. And they'll have to look at, at, at what, what's going on with the, with the animals and the, and the patterns. It's a much more complex series of relations that are going on than are described in that particular article, for example, which is not done by real operant psychologists, but by other folks just using the preparation. Now, we had rats in our laboratory who would eat each other. <laughs> I mean, you'd go in, you'd find a half-eaten rat. And people say, oh, just put them in communities and they'll be fine. Yeah, until, the, until one decides they want to get a little snack. <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, uh, you know, put some competing uh, males in there for females. Right, and see what happens. And the, uh, to the altruism. <laughs> You know, I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's politically correct to be laughing as you say that. But <laughs> I'm I, laughing. I'm not laughing about that. I'm laughing about the uh, the gullibility of the people who want the rats to be. You no, know, all the uh, um, stories that people like to build on one single little experiment without looking at the entire context of the conditions as they're raised. And what we found in most of the. Uh, the research is you can get just about whatever you want. In other words, you can get, uh, I can show rats are nasty or I can show rats are altruistic just based upon the w arrangements that I put them in. And rats sound like they're just people with long tails. That's exactly right. Yeah. We could go in another discussion about what separates people from animals and it's not what people think it is. People. Oh, that would be interesting. I'm sorry? That would be really interesting. Let's go down that rabbit hole very briefly. I would that would be exciting. Yes. All right, all right. The, uh, it's not kind of off topic here, but if you look at the work of Phil Lieberman at Brown, for example, um, oh, I should actually recommend him as a uh, ASAP speaker. He'd actually be very interesting. Uh, what well, he's done a great deal of work on what actually does separate <laughs> humans from from animals and so forth. And and both in a physiological sense, he's a biologist, physiologist at Brown, but also he's an evolutionary uh, theorist. And he, so he ties everything in terms of uh, evolutionary accounts and, and so forth. And it turns out it, what separates humans from other organisms is bipedalism. And it's what? Bipedalism. Us walk okay. around on all. Now, yes, there's certain animals who can stand up and for a while walk on two legs and and birds do too, but it's a very different form of locomotion. When you talk about the bipedal locomotion and what is involved, 
in being able to manipulate, maneuver, turn, run away from, back up, go forward, and so on. And what he found, and what is fascinating, is that the same basic patterns on distribution of steps and walking and dancing, for example, are almost identical to what's found in language. That language is a byproduct of bipedalism. And, it's the, and, there, and there is actually a gene that we have that animals do not have, which seems to influence our ability to do what's called recombinant and recursive motor patterns. Uh, and that is mix, a, mix your motor patterns in all kinds of different ways and into new set, uh, composites from the component motor patterns. And in these um, patterns are the fundamental background of, uh, basis of language and that almost all language disorders have their roots in the motor areas of the brain and actually disrupting those results in the language and cognitive decline. And that's what uh, Lieberman has showed in his work at Brown, that much of the work which we think is uh, separated in terms of cognitive areas of the brain and so on are actually a function of lower motor pattern disruption uh, that is reflected in these areas, but it's because of the motor uh, disruption. If you in inhibit this gene that results in that, you get language deficits. And there's, all, there's actually a group of people who have a problem with this gene Gen uh, you know, inheriting it uh, in terms of a faulty, not working correctly, and they have language problems. And so it used to be called the language gene, but actually it's a motor gene. And so when we learn to walk upright and we're walking around, we also have the unique pattern of a bone that occurs in our throats dropping. Um, our tongue then could take a little different position, and we could say consonants. You know, most animals speak in vowels. Parrots can get close to sounding like a consonant, but even they are vowel-like. But so your monkeys are going, ee, they speak in vowels. Whereas in, in humans, we can say, and we can formulate consonants. So when you take that, that historical uh, sounds of the uh, vowels and put them with some consonants, they can then come under operant control. And since they're motor patterns, and we're bipedal organisms, all of a sudden, we have the ability to do recombinant patterns. And so that gives us the basis of language. And so our language is a fallout of walking around. <laughs> wow. All right? Not something that just popped into our heads because of some genetic thing that all of a sudden, you know, let there be language. You know, It's actually a very um, sensible adaptation that occurred. Or actually, it's more of an exaptation, but that's another topic. Uh, that occurred during our evolutionary history and makes perfect sense. So one of the things Lieberman said that always said, you know, he said, if you think language has, uh, is the difference, have you ever seen an ape do the tango? <laughs> you know, in other words, you can get them to jump around and dance like, you know, but you can't see them do complex psychomotor activities and neither can any other animal. And that revolves recursive or recombinant patterns. They can do some complex things, but what you'll find is it's not the recombinative things that people just do on a tennis court, for example. So the uh, so you're you're defining recombinant patterns as as what? as the ability to take basic behavioral units and sequence them in new ways on the fly. In other words, you can you can sequence them on new ways on the fly 
and put them into new units on the fly, basically. So you can have sentences that reconstruct and you can words in different orders and sequences all over the place. That's just a function of being able to play tennis. Okay. Back to, to Andre Agassi. Brilliant. <laughs> and that's well, not my brilliance, it's Phil Lieberman's brilliance. Uh, he and I disagree on a couple things, but uh, overall we, uh, we're, we're pretty good, close uh, agreement with that. It makes perfect sense from an evolutionary point of view. You know, from my perspective, if it doesn't make sense evolutionarily, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, right. so uh, uh, you know, the notion that things just pop up all of a sudden uh, makes no sense. Uh, or an emergent property of such and such. That doesn't make any sense to me. But you can have acceptations, which mean briefly that a pattern that evolved uh, for one set of evolutionary reasons is co-opted by a new set of evolutionary requirements. And so there are plenty of examples of uh, the one that Gould uses is the panda's thumb, which looks like an oppos like a thumb, right? But it's not. It's actually a piece of cartilage that was shaped uh, for a different source, and then, then that uh, for a different reason, and then uh, evolutionarily it had adaptive value and it actually developed into a thumb. But that's not what its original function was. And the uh, wings, for example, on, on animals. Yeah, you, you can't shape uh, evolutionarily evolve flying, <laughs> right? Right, right. And so they think it would, had to do with running up trees and, and then helping you get up the side of trees and in insects differently, skimming across water. And so they look at uh, certain organisms that fly, probably evolved for different reasons. But once you got up in the air, now other consequences, if you will, could have selective consequences and right. can have effect. You know, you get away from your predator, you live to reproduce, and the next guy can do a little better and so on. But that's not what they originally was, the adaptation. Uh, it's um, uh, the butterfly's uh, what do you, proboscis tongue, whatever you want to call it on a butterfly. That evolved before there were flowers. Mm -hmm. Right. And, wow. the, uh, and maybe help the flowers evolve. <laughs> and maybe help the flowers evolve. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, uh, so these things are interlocking. But this is a little off topic, but... <laughs> That's all right. Interesting, though. But, but we could just pop out of that rabbit hole, look around and say, oh, degrees of freedom. Let's, let's go down that, that rabbit hole uh, again. So, 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 so what we're, we're talking about here then is that if I am under control of the alternatives, yeah. then I can essentially coerce someone into doing one thing versus another with only the application of positive reinforcement. Yes. If that's the only way you're going to get that reinforcement. Yeah. So this is how they get dogs to stand on electrified plates. I've coerced you into an activity in school. I've coerced you into tennis. Right? Right. And so it is not simply the use of positive reinforcement that makes the world non-aversive. <laughs> right? <laughs> So one has to be careful when someone says, oh, well, I strictly use positive reinforcement, but I force my, you know, got it's going to happen now. And there's no other way to get, if there's no other way to get the treat, and I'm doing that, and the dog has to sit there, and the only way it's going to ever get that treat is to do it my way or the highway, then you're coercing that dog into that behavior. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying you have to realize what you're doing. 
Exactly. Yeah. And at times, you know, we have to do certain things like that to get patterns uh, started and so on that'll eventually lead to broader choice. It's called education, right? <laughs> you know, and, and so forth. We have to send kids to school. We have to do a, a variety of things. But the element is, is to be informed about what we're doing and to make decisions, value decisions, based upon our understanding of that restriction. Right. So when, when I'm starting horses and I start them in a stall, I'm very much limiting what they can do. Right. So I've limited the, their, their choices. Right. They're in a stall. Here's, here are a number of options. You can go eat hay in the corner. You can ignore me totally. You can come to the front of the stall and, and interact with this target that I'm holding up. And, oh, look, I'll give you treats. And then through that process of training, I actually can expand their degrees of freedom. I can give them more choices. I can get them out of that stall. I can broaden their repertoire. And right. over time, they will have, That's as right. an educated individual, their degrees of freedom will expand enormously. Right. And, and so a child born to a family of minors goes to college. Right. Becomes a uh, lawyer or a doctor or uh, an animal trainer or some, some highfalutin job like that versus working in the mines. Now, what's interesting is then we can, we, you can step back and say, okay, that same person could work in the mines, work in the mills perhaps, or work in, in the uh, field. And they have two degrees of freedom within that set of uh, manual labor, let's say, or they can go into a profession. So they actually have a degree of freedom between classes of jobs. Yes. Right? That others don't. So I can have degrees of freedom within set, but between sets, I have restricted degrees of freedom of the type. I could become a doctor, a lawyer, candlestick maker, whatever it is. I don't know what, what the professions are that are college professor, uh, whatever, you know, what they call professional that require educational certain skills. Right. So those opportunities are there, but I have to have the skills. If I get those, I can always go and become a farmer. But if I'm a farmer, I can't do those. If I grew up on the farm, let's say. Right. Right. I grew up on the farm. I have the farm. I go to school. I do this. Yeah, you know what? I'll go back and be a farmer. They can do that. The farmer can't go and be the college professor. Under most conditions. So what you end up with is a hierarchy of sets where you can always go down the sets, but you can never go up unless you've got the contingencies. Yeah, and well, it's it's basically you know you you have sets that are defined by common consequences and similar types of skills and what's required to get them. So in the case of of the of the professional set, you have to have a set of professional skills and means to get them, which means the education is primarily what you you mean. So when people aren't given the education, they're coerced into a set. Even though there's degrees of freedom within the set they're coerced into, they're still coerced into the set of activities, right? So this is why I actually have a problem with the whole notion of tracking kids into, well, you know, everybody doesn't have to go to college. Everybody, like some can go to trade school. Well, my argument is a little different. Why can't you have trade school within college? Why can't I major in woodworking and still get a four-year college degree in liberal arts training and mathematics training and the whole thing that would allow me then to choose, if I, with my college degree, 
to go on and do something else other than that trade, but I can always do the trade. So I give myself yes. great degrees of freedom. You do, but, but speaking from Britain, I, I've been thinking as you were speaking, this is exactly what the, the Blair, the new Labour government tried to do when they opened up. So every trade school was made into a university. Okay. And then you end up with people with master's degrees stacking the shelves in the supermarkets because everybody has a master's degree. And now you get to the point where the only way you're going to get the professional jobs is if you have a doctorate, a PhD. Because 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 a master's degree has ceased to be a rarity. If everybody has one, well, yeah, then I'm it's talking about mostly select. on the on the bachelor's degree level. But I but you know I'm not sure that um, is all that bad. <laughs> yeah, no, everybody is you know more educated. Just stock on the shelf, you know. That's what the, you know, in the United States, there's a trend in the opposite direction. Okay. Uh, in the sense that, for example, at Apple, Google, Amazon now, I believe Amazon, I know Apple and Google, uh, and Microsoft, I think, is going to be implementing it. They've removed the requirement for a college degree, period. Right. So they're picking, picking people on their perception. So how do they choose the people to employ? Yeah, they choose it on the basis of competencies. And they don't, they, just, and they discard, they don't care about degrees. And okay. they, uh, if you, they give you problems to solve and uh, skill tests and so forth. And if you can pass those, you don't have to have a degree. My son uh, left school before he completed his bachelor's degree. And he's now a VP of a software firm. Wow. And computer science. And his, and his background was not in computer science in college. And so the notion that you have to have degrees now in particular areas is actually result is actually not uh, as frequent as it used to be. It used to be the admission ticket into my, my younger son has a degree in philosophy and he's in, a, in the business world as a, a consultant in a top, uh, uh, top four consulting firm. And so it's turning out that um, having to have these particular um, degrees and so forth are not uh, as readily required as they used to be in the past. And partially because degrees don't tell you much about what a person can actually be. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're increasing degrees of freedom. Yeah. Exactly. By saying you don't have to have a specific degree. That's exactly right. Right. And the choices that are across the board. Now you can go into yeah. a variety of things. Yeah. My uh, older son was a major in comparative human development. My younger son was philosophy. And that didn't track them into one thing or another. That They had a multiple choices as long as they could gain the competencies, right? The means. So what people are looking at now are the means. Do you have the means to do this job? Can you really demonstrate that? And if you can, then you'll be considered for that job and for promotions and the whole, and the whole thing. Now, it's not to say that degrees still aren't important and MBAs and so on tend to get a little jump start on, on things and MDs. Typically, you're not allowed to practice medicine. I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> but one, but doesn't mean because. And but the flip side is, just because you have a medical degree, doesn't mean you should be practicing medicine. But the, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so it goes a couple of ways. But it's a, uh, it's it's a changing world with more degrees of freedom, and in, there's been studies that show, however, that too much, too many degrees of freedom, too much choice, it becomes aversive. 
Yes. And people will work to reduce the amount of choice. So it is not uh, 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 automatic that the more degrees of freedom you have, the better off you are. Or the more. We, uh, I worked at a program in the community colleges in Chicago in the 1990s. And, of course, what had happened is the uh, Soviet Union had collapsed. And so people were pouring out of, of Eastern Europe, particularly that had formerly been under communist control, and coming into Chicago. Because we have large groups of uh, ethnic communities there that are representative of Eastern Europe. And so people were coming because they had relatives and so forth. And what we'd find is that people would go into a grocery store and stand there and start crying. Because there was too much. Too many there. choices. They didn't know how to buy cereal. They didn't know how to pick yeah. out meat. They didn't know what, you know, whether I have chicken or, or hamburgers today. You know, it, it, it was just too much. And so they had to actually, we had to develop programs that eased them into this and then taught them how to make choice and how to make a list and kind of stick to the list and then do one alternative off the list and so on. There was a whole uh, programs that had to be developed to help them when they had no history of choice. It was a choice became aversive. Mm. And so when people talk about at times people coming from authoritarian societies, how could they live there or how could they prefer that or how could they prefer the old way of doing it? You, you, it kind of makes sense once you understand what the contingencies are that are operating in those. And one of the clear things that we know is that behavior always makes sense. There's no such yes. thing as irrational behavior, and there's no such thing as maladaptive behavior. There is, is a such thing as disturbing behavior. In other words, behavior that causes us problems or causes the person problems, right? But it got there through some very rather prosaic uh, uh, reinforcement contingencies. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a mystery how it gets there. We also used to have a saying in our lab, just because I understand a pattern and it's not sick, doesn't mean it's not sickening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't mean I have to like it. Right. Because I understand it. <laughs> you know? Which which brings us to that to the rabbit hole that I really wanted to dive down, okay. which is what you presented on this the private days at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. The connection of degree between degrees of freedom and so terrorism. And isolation, yeah, yeah. Well, here's an interesting piece to this. I will tell you that what Joe shared with us during the private talks was more than interesting. It was alarming, and it was also hopeful. But I'm going to make you wait a week to find out what the effects of isolation and a restriction of degrees of freedom can create. In the meantime, if you were listening to this the week it was published, you may be feeling like a lab rat yourself inside a very unpleasant experiment. We're all having to isolate ourselves and stay away from the things that bring us a lot of reinforcement, namely our normal lives. The coronavirus is impacting all of us. So stay well, stay in touch. I should add, when I say stay in touch, I mean digitally, from a distance. We need to keep our social distancing going. But spring is coming, 
I know I've been giving my immune system a little bit of a boost by working outside in the garden. And I will say, if you've been intrigued by this conversation with Joe Lang, and you really don't want to wait a whole week before you hear more from him, you can watch his 2016 presentation on a behavioral analysis of emotions. That was fascinating. He gave that talk at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. So to find it, go to the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference website. A quick Google search will get you there. Choose the video menu option, and that will take you to the list of presentations that are available. And if you want even more presentations on behavioral analysis, you can go to equosity.com. That's the webpage for my other podcast. So equosity is equus plus curiosity gives you equosity. Go to equosity.com. We have a series of webinars available with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, as well as with Dr. Susan Friedman. That will increase your degrees of freedom by giving you an alternative to endless Netflix videos. And they are great lectures. So enjoy, stay well, and let's hope we get to a reasonable form of a new normal very soon. Next week, we'll bring you part two of our conversation with Joe Lang. For now, remember, it's not just horse people who can make a difference. We all can. And what's more, what this virus is showing us is we really need to. So next week, I'll have another podcast for you. And I hope all of you stay well. 